Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here. Um, I am particularly delighted uh, to spend the next hour or so with my dear friend, um, Tzvi Ish Shalom, and get into, I think, as you will see, the deep end of the pool uh, rather quickly because he brings a, a unique blend of um, wisdom and scholarship that I think you will be utterly delighted with. So let me first introduce him and then we're just going to jump right in. So Zviya Shalom, PhD, is an ordained, ordained rabbi, a professor of wisdom traditions at Naropa University, and is the founder of Kaduma, a universal path of ancient Hebrew wisdom that teaches a step-by-step -step approach to spiritual awakening and personal development. Zvi is the author of the book, The Kaduma Experience, The Primordial Torah, and the forthcoming Sleep, Death, and Rebirth, Mystical Practices of the Kabbalah. So welcome, my dear friend. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to um, chat with us. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, thank you for having me. This is a, yeah, I, this is a delight. <laughs> I wanted to share at the outset um, one of the reasons of many that I'm so thrilled to have discovered your work and to um, have developed a, a relationship, friendship with you is that when I first came up across your book, the Kaduma, and please correct me if my pronunciations are wrong with anything that I utter during our time together, but I was so struck by uh, the commonalities of the Kaduma teachings and what you then um, put into the book that is completely in harmony with my understanding of, of what you and some other scholar practitioners are doing, this idea of trans-religiosity, these cultures, these traditions, that really transcend um, tradition concept altogether. And, and as you well know, in Buddhism, Dokshen, allegedly the highest of the Tibetan Buddhist schools, um, can arguably, arguably transcend Buddhism altogether. Um, I think Kaduma certainly falls into that char characterization. There are others that meet at this kind of um, trans-conceptual level. And so I found that really exciting and also the rare blend that you bring as a scholar practitioner that brings so much extra weight to me that you, in fact, this book was a fundamentally a series of transcriptions from some live teachings that you did. And, and you share, I have to say, in the most marvelous way, these truly inspiring stories of, of both your awakenings and um, your uh, trials and tribulations. And it's really completely magnetizing when I read the sort of text. So with that said, I think what we should start with with our, with our listeners is maybe a few definitions because um, certainly until I came across your book, I had no idea what Kaduma was. I had some marginal traffic with um, teachings from the Torah. So can we start with that, Zvi? I mean, let's define a couple of things so that we have a running vocabulary as we go forward. So talk to us a little bit about the, uh, the relationship of Kaduma to Torah and actually what we're talking about with those terms. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, and your, your pronunciations thus far have been uh, stellar. So uh, uh, so that's impressive. That's, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. It usually doesn't go that way. Uh, <laughs> So the word, let me start with Torah, since that's more fundamental. Um, the word Torah is typically known as a, 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 it's a Hebrew word that means teaching, but it's usually used to refer to the 
the the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the, what's known as the the Hebrew Bible, the five books of Moses primarily, followed by the books of the prophets and the books of the writings, which constitute the 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 canon of ancient Hebrew scriptures. Uh, however, traditionally speaking, the word Torah is actually used to refer not just to the to the Hebrew scriptures, but really to the totality of the teaching, which includes all of the oral uh, teachings that were passed down over you know thousands of years, alongside the written Torah, the, you know the, the scriptural texts. It also includes, under the umbrella term Torah, the many practices and um, rituals uh, and prayers. It's really the totality of the path, of the way, of the teaching. And in this sense, the word Torah is very similar, I think, to the way the term Dharma is used in Buddhism. That it does not just refer to a specific text, but really to the totality of the teaching, which includes the practices and the many pathways to attain realization. Mm-hmm. And then how about, oh, sorry, please continue. I was just going to see how, how does that relate then to Kaduma? Yeah. So within the Torah tradition, using again this, this more broader sense of Torah, we have many streams of wisdom which include both exoteric and esoteric dimensions and so uh, the esoteric dimension of torah is typically known by this term uh, kabbalah or kabbalah depending on the pronunciation um you know kabbalah which is the the traditional pronunciation of the hebrew has become more popular in new age circles in recent and probably the last decade. And so in many ways has been dismembered from the original context of Torah. However, traditionally the Kabbalah tradition, which really represents the, the, the wide spectrum of Jewish mystical teachings um, is inextricably wed to the the exoteric teachings of, um, of Torah. Um, I suspect that in some ways this, and maybe this is also a question, is this also the case in, uh, in many lineage streams of, of Buddhism that uh, the esoteric uh, dimensions were originally totally intertwined with the, uh, the traditional exoteric contexts of those teachings? Yes, for sure. And as you know, and, and I love the way you bring this forth in your own writings, they're often self-secret, you know, within the context of the exoteric is is hidden in this kind of twilight language or, um, you know, Buddhism sometimes, Dakini code. The esoteric is, is uh, kind of embedded within the exoteric and then a close, closer reading, closer rendering of the text and the practices then reveal this deeper um, level of teaching. So yeah, there's a lot of resonance in that regard as well. Yes, that makes sense. That's very, very similar. And so, you know, when I began to really dig deeply into the Kabbalistic teachings, um, 
I did so within the framework of a very traditional uh, context and, and personal practice of Judaism, which is sort of the context that I was trained in and you know born into. Um, and so this brings us to Kaduma because it's important to sort of situate Kaduma within the context of Judaism, uh, which is more of the exoteric and Kabbalah more of the esoteric. Kaduma is not a term that's typically used in the tradition. It's not a, you know, it's a term that I've, <laughs> that I've kind of, um, you know, taken as a, uh, as a kind of underscoring, you know, as an attempt to recapture or reclaim a particular wisdom stream or particular orientation or approach that I find is intrinsic to both Kabbalah and to Judaism more broadly. Mm -hmm. That is typically not articulated and understood in the formulations that I that I have encountered in the tradition. And so, you know, Kaduma is not something that until until I've kind of reclaimed the term and used it in the title of this book and really have, have been using it as a as a signifier for this body of teachings that I've been introducing over the past few years, it wasn't a term that was very well known, although it does appear in several ancient texts. And that's that was where I first encountered them. And it appears in a specific way. It's a term that in Hebrew means primordial or ancient, mm -hmm. but it's used, uh, specifically to refer to what's called the Torah Kaduma, the, the primordial Torah. And thus the, you know, the subtitle of the book, the primordial Torah. Um, what is the primordial Torah? It's not totally clear if one is reading these texts simply through the lens of a, you know, of a, con of the conventional mind. Because if we just read the text and translate those terms from the normative perspective of the historically conditioned thinking mind, we will tend to interpret the word Kaduma to refer to ancient in terms of time. Yeah. You know, like uh, referring back to some previous time in linear history, that there was some perhaps Torah or teaching or or text that existed in some kind of prehistory or in some ancient time. But when understood properly and when we really study those texts, it becomes clear that they're pointing not to a conventional sense of ancient, but they're really pointing to a, a more fundamental condition of consciousness that is the nature of our consciousness prior to the creation and the formation of thought. That yeah. is to say, it's pointing to a preconceptual or non-conceptual mode of, of perception, of experience. And in fact, the text points to this quite explicitly. They state that the Torah Kaduma, this primordial Torah, is the, is the teaching that existed prior to the creation of the world. And when understood properly and mystically, it's pointing to the 
teaching that exists prior to the formation and the creation of our concepts, which is in fact the world that we perceive. It is perceived through the, in the conventional sense, through the filter of our conceptual mind. And so by sort of taking this term Kaduma, I'm, I'm reclaiming what I experience as a primordial lineage that points us uh, toward the potential of our human experience, our human consciousness to uh, ground itself, to reconnect itself, to embed itself more squarely and um, clearly in the luminous primordial uh, ground of our being, of, of consciousness itself, and ultimately of reality. Yeah, so in this regard, it's, it's really pretty resonant, is it not, with um, terms like Dharmakaya, uh, Dharma Datu in, in, the, in the Buddhist, um, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, you know, that which is pre-temporal, pre-spatial, and again, kind of this trans-religious, which in a certain sense you could also equally say is just pre-religious, it's something that that, that predates any level of articulation. Um, and so I think there's a lot of kind of overlap behind that. And and so what, with your permission, what I, what I want to do here today is, first of all, I'll ask you just one or two questions in terms of how, um, because again, within the context of what we're doing here is we, we use um, sleep and dream as a way to explore at least when we're heading to the deeper end of the pool, the nature of mind and reality. And so um, where I want to go with you in a few minutes after I kind of throw a few more introductory questions your way is, is I want to explore with you um, the idea of lucidity principle altogether, which, which is where, again, speaking of code words, you know, in my kind of vocabulary, lucid as in lucid dreaming is lucidity is a code word for awareness. So. When we talk about lucidity within the context of dreams, we're just really using the dream, the way mind manifests in that arena, as a way to explore the nature of mind, awareness, consciousness itself altogether. So that's where I want to go with you. But when, when I met with you, I, I want to um, have you sh share a little bit with our listeners what we had talked about in terms of um, what role do dreams play in Judaism altogether, and in particular, um, Jewish mysticism, Kaduma. Um, and, you know, I remember when we met, we talked a little bit about, I was so pleasantly surprised to hear that in in the Jewish inner yogic, what we would call inner yogic principles, that dreams abide in the, in the throat center, throat chakra, which of course is exactly where dreams, the kind of essence of mind abides when we're dreaming. So. If you don't mind, um, talk to us a little bit about the role of dreams in Judaism altogether. And then um, if you feel comfortable with it, a little bit about how dreams um, have played a role in your life and how you engage in the exploration of the nocturnal minds as uh, aspects of your own path to the state. Yeah, sounds, sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. So sure, let me give it. Let me let me let me give this a spin. Take this for a spin, and let's see where we go. And feel free to interrupt me and okay. um, and ask you know if I'm something you know needs more clarification or. 
Yeah, so in general, um, dreams are recognized both in, you know, the broader exoteric tradition of Judaism and certainly within Kabbalah as a, uh, as a significant feature of human consciousness and one that is, holds, holds many uh, secrets. In the Talmud, which is the main collection of, of Jewish oral teachings originally, and then, you know, about a few thousand years ago, it started to be recorded in writing and really represents the main, the main literature of the Jewish uh, exoteric tradition. There's an entire section of the Talmud that actually deals with exclusively with dreams and dreaming. Uh -huh and its function um and to really if we if we look at those teachings at those texts we see at first glance what appears to be a paradoxical uh relationship or understanding of the function of dreaming on the one hand the text seem to point to uh to dreams as, as not something for us to put too much weight on. Mm -hmm. Like there's this, um, there's this phrase, um, you know, that's, that states something like, uh, uh, is the phrase in, in Hebrew that's, uh, in the, in the Talmud, which, it's best translated. It, it's best translated as dreams should not be uh, should not be weighted. We should not be taken with too much weight, mm -hmm. or should not be. You should not draw any kind of practical, uh, pragmatic conclusions from dreams. Um, th however, th that's the way it's typically translated, only because that phrase is really used idiomatically in a certain way. Uh -huh. So it's kind of like a phrase that repeats itself in various ways in the Talmud. And it, it's usually uh, meant as, you know, it's neither here nor there. And, but literally, the phrase, my, my understanding of the phrase is really an allusion to a deeper meaning. Because the phrase literally means, Loma Alan Veloma Ridin. Does not go up and does not go down. That's a literal... <laughs> That, that's the literal translation of that phrase. So dreams do not go up and they do not go down. Okay, so taken as a kind of idiom, it's like, you know, don't, don't put too much in, don't put too much out. Like, it, 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 does that make sense? I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but I think actually there's a lot more to that phrase and it explains what appears to be a paradoxical and even ambivalent relationship to dreams in the Talmud because the other side of the, and I'll, I'll swing back to this point in a moment. The other side of the paradox is that, on the other hand, the ancient uh, wisdom holders of Judaism also recognized dreams to have quite a bit of significance that we should pay attention to, to our dreams. Um, and this is reflected in certain traditions uh, that, for example, <laughs> The Talmud states that if a person takes a vow in a dream, 
to do something. They should, uh, uh, they should strive to, uh, to keep that vow in their waking life. Uh -huh. um, if, you know, and there's like other examples of this kind of a thing where one is encouraged to kind of, um, you know, to take seriously what happens in our dreams as if it's like waking life. So here we have this interesting, you know, and there's other examples of this, but here we have this interesting uh, polarity. On the one hand, dreams are not significant and should not be taken seriously. On the other hand, they should be taken seriously. In fact, they represent a reality akin to the waking reality. Yeah, very much so. In, 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 uh, in the kind of uh, Tibetan cartography of dreams, there's this points to the kind of spectrum of a dream, um, both in terms of uh, phenomenological appearance of the dream and, and also these, these kind of deeper philosophical usages of the dream. And so it runs from you know, mere neurological noise, you know, just discharge that, that fundamentally dreams can be um, fundamental static of the mind with, with no inherent message or deeper level of meaning. But even there, I have to interject right away that even that dream, when one becomes lucid to it, um, that can be used for the practices of lucidity. So any dream, even a neurologically noisy dream, so to speak, can be used for the purposes of lucidity. And so it goes from this kind of lower infrared level of dreaming all the way to what are sometimes called dreams of clarity or clear light dreams, where the dream can be, you know, I've had, I've been blessed with some of these experiences and they're among the most transformative of my life, where you have dreams that are hyper real, that are more clear and real, quote unquote, than this reality. And, and those are the ones that in my own experience have been game changers because one, wakes up from that type of thing to this so-called waking reality and this appears to be the foggy dream and contradistinction to that but i just wanted to throw into the mix that this this seemingly paradoxical approach has um again correlates within the, the buddhist tradition at least as i've come to understand it so and so how, how oh, oh i'm sorry go ahead yeah no, that makes a lot of sense and actually the the discriminations you're making um reflect more of where kabbalah where you know the, the mystical tradition will tend to go with uh, its understanding of dreams because you know so far what i've shared is really the more of the normative yeah. kind of perspective on it but actually um if i could say a few more things to flush out um yeah. flush out this this sort of uh this polarity that we find in the Talmud, the, uh, the the Talmud also says that for the most part, that the things we dream about at night uh, reflect what we're thinking about during the day. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, however, it acknowledges that there are many things that that are common to dreams that. Um, that um, you know can't be explained or or could not be perceived in ordinary waking life, like the the 
one of the features that it tends to return to is this feature of a combination of opposites, which is which is uh, kind of typical of the dream state, which is in the one example given by uh, by Maimonides, a famous medieval commentary, uh, sort of a rabbinic scholar, is like seeing something like a ship flying in the air. You know, now in in the 1100s, that was something that was would be difficult to conceive, uh, which is when he wrote this, right? But of course, now we do see ships flying in the air, so that's kind of a funny example. Um, but it's like seeing things that uh, combine the power of imagination. They actually co call it koach in Hebrew. The power of imagination takes gets strengthened over the power of a cognition. That's the way they phrase it. So when we go to sleep, the power of cognition diminishes and the power of imagination uh, increases. And the power of imagination is able to hold uh, seemingly opposite kinds of phenomena in its purview. Um, so, so it recognizes, so that, that's all kind of, but there is no clear perspective really in the exoteric dimension in terms of how to use dreams or what the function of dreams are in the awakening, you know, towards spiritual awakening or the development and cultivation of, of a realized condition. But in Kabbalah, there is more of an understanding of that. And it, and it follows some of the, the lines that you shared. Like, for example, it recognizes that, um, that it's true. There's a dimension of dreams that are, appears to be really just discharging the thoughts uh, that we've had during the day. Um, however, it, we can explain that can explain other features of dreaming, uh, and they even ask like in certain Kabbalistic texts they ask questions like, when we have dream we can have dreams about things that we've never thought of before, for example, that we that don't seem to reflect anything that we were thinking about during the day. Uh, we also have dreams that foretell the future. They took this for granted that one can dream something and then that thing will occur and can occur. So how do we explain that from the perspective of, a, of just the, the defrag theory of dreams, right? Which is, you know, if I'm using sort of this concept of like defragging a computer at night, they saw it kind of like that, that, you know, we'd go to sleep at night and all of the, the sort of all the impulses that the brain produces during the day and they you know and i'm now giving a little bit of an interpretation because they, they're using these esoteric terms like they use this term otiot otiot in hebrew means letters but otiot are not just letters they're symbols they're any kind of brain product mm -hmm. um that sort of produces uh, some some bit of, of data of information and it could be a sensation it could be a symbol it can be all the way to articulated speech and language as a form of communication so like in the Kabbalistic perspective uh, the brain is just producing millions of these OTO these letters quote-unquote right these uh, these sort of uh, I don't know brain impulses you probably there's probably a much better technical term from the neuroscientific perspective we're just producing them all day and there's only some percentage of those that actually come into conscious awareness 
right. in our in our in our awake state. And so all night we're just when we go to sleep at night we're tired primarily because we have millions of these brain impulses that have not sort of you know been properly organized and uh, discharged through the the you know the neural networks and so we just discharge them kind of at night um, and that's that's what and that's how they explain the Talmudic perspective that what we dream about at night are mostly things that we think about during the day. It's like right. the brain is it's defragging. Um, so, so that's one piece of it. And then, did you want to chime in before I? Yeah, I, I guess no. Again, it's just spot on um, in terms of my understanding of of obviously the dreamscape altogether. But maybe you're heading this way. So you seem to be intimating that in the Kabbalah there is uh, an analog to what we refer to as lucid dreaming or dream yoga, you know, ways to use the dreaming mind for purposes of spiritual awakening. So I, I'd love to take it in that direction because uh, it sounds like you're heading there. And, and again, to see if in fact you've been able to engage your own dreaming mind in, in this way on your own path. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, I'm going in that direction. <laughs> cool. Uh, on the same yeah. route. <laughs> yeah. Um, so obviously, there's you know, like like in like in dream yoga, and um, there's so much uh, to it in Kabbalah. But in essence, in order to understand really the perspective on dreaming and how it can be used on the path, it's like from their perspective, and perhaps this is one difference with what you shared in in the Tibetan tradition, is that or in the tradition of, lucid, of lucidity. In the Kabbalah tradition, primarily the, um, the depth potential of dreams and sleep in general as a, as a time for deepening the path occurs once we have kind of, a, once we have uh, passed through and completed the defrag process. So it's kind of like this two-stage thing where first the mind has to get clearer, has yep. to get clearer of its content. Yep. And the, the way that we, we hold our consciousness during our awake state during the day or while we're in wake consciousness is crucial in terms of minimizing the kind of discharge that's required when we sleep. Yeah. Because as we do that, uh, the more we keep our mind clear during the day, then the less we have to kind of defrag, the less our, defrag, our, our brain has to defrag while we sleep, and the more we can drop into the deeper potential of sleep, which is, uh, you know, which is, a, which is first a state of dreaming that is more aligned with what they would call prophecy because uh, prophetic dreaming, you could say. Yeah. Now, by prophecy, it's not just like seeing the future. You know, that's not, that's not what the Kabbalists meant primarily by prophecy. The prophetic state of mind is a state of mind that, that correlates with a dimension of cosmic sort of reality that they call... Um, it's known as igulim. There's there's two primary categories of 
uh, or you could say forms of reality. One is known as igulim in Hebrew, which means literally means circles, and the other one is yosher, which means lines. Hmm. One represents the state of consciousness that is non-linear, that's circular consciousness. That is to say, there's no beginning and there's no end. If you sit at a round table, who's sitting at the head of the table? It could be mm -hmm. anybody, right? There, this is the principle of um, um, it states in Hebrew that the end is embedded in the beginning and the beginning is embedded in the end. That state of consciousness is where ultimately dreams originate from. They originate from a, a non-linear uh, dimension of reality where there is no where time and space are not bound in any kind of uh, linear direction directional framework that's the state of yosher yosher is the state of lines and that's the typical state of consciousness that we experience while waking and even during dreams if our uh, if our dreams are still on the level of discharging brain impulse, and so the goal, in a sense, in terms of spiritual practice, uh, is to keep the mind as lucid as possible, both while awake and then while sleeping, to expedite the discharge process, so that we can drop into first uh, a dream state that is more of the pure nature of the realm of igulim, of the circular dimension, which is the non-linear the non dimension, which is the source of dreams. And that's why prophecy can be discerned in that state because there's no, there's no boundaries to time and space. So we could see things in the future, we could see things in the past, uh, the quote unquote future and quote unquote past, because in that dimension of reality, it's all in the now. Um, and that then becomes another portal, potential portal, to an even deeper mode of consciousness, which is to the what I would call the primordial dimension of consciousness. Because the state of Kaduma is even is that which both uh, you could say uh, is the ground from which even dreams arise, even in their most lofty condition of dreams you know this dimension this primordial dimension of igulim of circular so it could and that i think points more to the state of pure lucidity that perhaps you know you're pointing to in the in the tradition of lucid dreaming perhaps lucidity is really situating oneself more in that pure awareness that can perceive and be aware both of the content of the dreams even if the dreams are of a lofty sort of non-linear and prophetic nature and drop into an even more fundamental or foundational state of mind. Yeah, that's beautiful. And, and what I was uh, reminded of was when you were talking about how one first has to defrag the mind during the day, um, it reminds me when we had B.L. Wallace on and we interviewed him and, and we went into this really lovely discussion, or I should say he did, about the relationship of, of uh, and the importance of shamatha and Vipassana, and, and that really what he was saying was that um, dream yoga is a form of Vipassana, a form of insight in the, in the truest sense of that word. And, and so it's completely resonant with what you're saying here, that defragging the mind during the day with what Alan was talking about as shamatha, um, and then 
preparing the, the reasoning the skids with that practice so that when one drops into the dream state, the defrag is already taken place, then the ability to see clearly, i.e. that's a passion in itself, allows you to then um, relate to the dream in this much more skillful and yogic fashion. So, um, I mean, it's not like we need each other's traditions to reinforce what um, Buddhism and, and um, Jewish mysticism are saying, but it's also to me uh, fairly resonant that, or I should say exciting, that there are these foundational resonances between these wisdom traditions, because otherwise um, it would be a little bit disconcerting if there's just this kind of sliding scale of reality and everybody's just doing their own cultural thing. So without you know, needing to find substantiation in wisdom traditions from other tracks, and again, as we know, um, this was one of the, the promises and perils of the whole perennial philosophy that, you know, they're all saying the same thing. Well, yes and no. I mean, scholarship is, has shown that that's really not quite the case. But still, even with that said, at these really foundational levels, certainly my reading of, of um, Kaduma, Vajrayana, Buddhism, um, Nandua, Shaiva, Tantra, and the like, is they most certainly seem, to the best of my ability, to be speaking about and describing the same reality um, in just simply different cultural and literal languages. And so I get very excited when I uh, see this kind of approach. So, And so how, how have you taken this into your own heart and path then? Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's that's true what you're saying, and that um, I'll mention also the I'll bring this to my path in terms of the yogic aspect of it, uh, which relates to the throat center, which you brought up earlier, which I think is a remarkable correlation between traditions. Really, I mean, you can't explain that away. Right? Mm -hmm. um, the the Kabbalists and the Tibetan masters had no historical connection, as far as we as far as we could tell, right? And yet they both somehow come to this realization and recognition that uh, this the seed of dreams is in the throat center consciousness yeah uh, really remarkable you know one would think when you toss this in it's it sometimes um the buddhist tradition is referred to as a science of mind is kind of a first person science and and i i don't think it's too much of a stretch to extend that definition to other wisdom traditions that in fact have an empirical method, i.e. Uh, meditations to kind of test the veracity of the teaching. So um, the science from the Jewish Middle East and the Buddhist uh, Far East seems to have hit upon the same level of, of reality. So um, very exciting. So. <laughs> um, yeah, and I will get to my personal thing now because I, you know, um, I don't want to sort of try and evade that one. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the one of the key teachings in the in the Jewish tradition is um, this teaching that sleep is one sixtieth of death. Uh -huh. that's, a, yeah. that's a statement from the Talmud, actually. Uh, and so, sleep was recognized as a mini kind of death, and that thus can be approached as a death practice in a sense. Yeah. Um, and that's how that's how I've mostly related to it. So uh, I, you know, there's also this beautiful verse in the book of um, Shir Hashirim, which is the book of Song of Songs, of song, or sometimes translated Song of Solomon. Ani sheina v'libi er in Hebrew, which means uh, I am asleep, but my heart is awake. Uh, 
that's been my my personal practice in relationship to sleep and i came upon it really by accident it wasn't like i learned some technique that i then applied in my early kind of awakening experiences one of the one of one of the prominent features of that period of time was that i was experiencing uh, a state of wakefulness that really made no distinction between what we usually call awake and sleep. Like it, that is to say that my heart was awake, mm -hmm. whether or not I, my body was awake or asleep, whether or not, whatever the content of my mind was generating, it didn't matter if it was linear content, like if it was the world of Yosher, the world of the, of the straight line, <laughs> or it was of the world of Igulim, if it was, you know, this world of, non-linear collapse of distance and space-time dimension there was a more fundamental state of mind that presented itself and that displayed itself that was just simply awake it was simply aware simply perceiving whatever content was arising and so uh in that ex in that series in that experience which lasted a period of time my early 20s, it became very clear to me experientially that uh, in some sense, the this demarcation between sleep and awake that we that, that we make artificially in some sense in the conventional paradigm of experience is quite limited. And that from the perspective of, of, of the awakened heart, um, what, whether or not the body is asleep or awake doesn't change this more changeless fundamental nature. That it is more uh, unchanging in that sense. And so I kind of, since that time, have related my own practice in that way. Um, is this making sense? What I'm Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? Um, In fact, it's it's frighteningly, or I should say, exhilaratingly similar to what an, an experience I had in my early twenties. Very similar type of thing, um, where I somewhat stumbled into a state that sounds completely correlative to what you experienced, where um, literally got to the point to be where I couldn't tell. Sometimes if I was literally awake or asleep and dreaming, my dreams became increasingly real. My waking reality be became increasingly dreamlike until there was this kind of democracy of consciousness or, or equanimity of awareness where I was starting to understand that the dreamlike nature of, of all reality um, and that um, it led to my exploration and eventual I should say working conclusion that one of the inner renderings of the word dream itself is, is really manifestation of mind. Um, and so it's it's completely resonant. And also when you're talking about the the heart being awake and unchanging, as you know, this is exactly, again, correlative to the changeless nature in, in the Buddhist tradition, This, which interestingly enough, of course, resides provisionally at the heart center where the clear light mind also resides. And so from that perspective, right. that's from, it is from that stance 
that we can look upon any arising, any phenomenal appearance and say with complete um, authenticity, this is a dream. Um, and I, I think that's what the Buddha's the awakened ones from any tradition wake up to. And then, of course, the, the issue becomes one of stability, expansion, and all that sort of thing. But not only does it make sense, it's co completely resonant with my own experience. So, yeah, bravo. Mm. Yeah, that's actually a beautiful... Uh, firstly, I, I totally resonate with what you're sharing about the, the <laughs> this, like, the sleep and awake and how they just totally blend. Um, you know, where it's what's sleeping and what's, you know, what's dreaming, what's wakefulness is like, just becomes totally blurred in a sense. Yeah. Um, and then also this movement from the throat down to the heart center uh, fits mm -hmm. also beautifully in terms of that direction that we, we, we start with dream and consciousness, what begins in the throat and then real, like a more profound kind of lucidity appears in the heart center, which then can, um, yeah, exactly. And in, in, in the Nyingma tradition of the nocturnal practices, the Nyingma school of Tibetan Buddhism, uh, sleep yoga is actually considered the foundational practice. Um, it's That's complete lucidity. And dream yoga is actually considered partial lucidity. I, I actually sometimes playfully refer to it as a kind of halfway house because using the inner yogic systems during the day, allegedly right now as you and I are speaking, the, the mind droplets, the bindus are abiding in the head chakra. That's one dimension of experience that we have kind of uh, given a kind of um, ontological supremacy that's not inherently there. And there, I think there's very interesting reasons to explore psychologically, um, I think mostly based on fear, why we tend to reify the waking state and then colonize, have that state colonize and dominate the others. But as we fall asleep in a very real way, and this is what I love in one of your beautiful chapters in your book, um, waking down, which has a, several layers of applicability. When we fall asleep from a spiritual perspective, if we are lucid to it, we're actually waking down and, and almost quite literally as the winds descend to the throat and we you know, attain um, lucid dreaming as a result of that, if we do it with awareness, um, you know, halfway house. And then, in fact, I, I often use my lucid dreams as a gateway into lucid sleep. There are several very interesting kind of inner yogic techniques where you can use the, the lucid dream state as a way, as a platform to mm -hmm. drop lucidly volitionally into full lucidity in the heart center. And so really, again, the, the fundamental you know, fruition is to realize the one taste quality or like, um, I think it's, uh, maybe in your book or, or in um, Chris Wallace's book where he talks about fundamentally from this space, you know, everything tastes like God, that everything has this pure kind of, and I guess this is really resonant with the Kadumba principle altogether, you know, this kind of primordial display of heart and mind. Mm -hmm. um, so I get very excited when I hear these sorts of things coming from, from other scholar mystics. So do you have anything more to say about that? Because then I want to shift gears into what I saw as one of the really great contributions of, of your book that is, I find, directly correlative to the lucidity principle. But before I um, switch gears, anything else you want to say along these lines from your own experience on how you're working with dreams, lucid and otherwise, today? Yeah, so I, um, I don't have much to say. I don't, I don't, you know, Judaism and Kabbalah does not have a, um, a real clear 
uh, path in terms of working with dreams other than to become more awake to them. So oh. that's the primary way that I work with them is that um, I, uh, you know, I, one is discerning what kind of a dream it is. Is it a, is it a, a defragging dream right. <laughs> or, or is it a dream that is situated more squarely in its, uh, in its root dimension, its root dimension being this dimension of nonlinear prophecy. Um, and so sometimes, you know, we, we just have a dream that just comes directly from that dimension and it's, it's not, it, it has more of the qualities of lucidity inherent to it. Yep. Um, it's like the dream itself is marked by more of that primordial light. Um, and so the practice is firstly to discriminate the nature of the dream. What, where, what is it, um, of what type is it? And that already is, is an expression of waking up in the dream, right? It's an expression of becoming more awake and conscious uh, and aware in the dream state just by being bringing attention to what kind of dream is this yeah. is, one, is one step of lucidity. And then the next step is to um, practice abiding in the in this non-conceptual kind of ground of lucidity regardless of the content so it's not getting captured by the the dream even if the dream is of the lucid nature even if it's of the this dimension of prophecy yep to to no, to notice and be and, and be sort of identified more in the ground as ground um and you know, it's the same practice that I would do during when I'm awake. That's yeah. that's what's so interesting. I mean, it's just, it's just a fundamental ground practice. Yes. Um, and so that's why there's, from my perspective, ultimately there's there is there isn't really a difference between this, this whether the state is one of quote unquote awake or quote unquote sleep. Really, the main difference is what, what is the body doing? So it's like the body is either in a state of deep sleep or it's in a more animated condition of functionality. Yeah. And, and that's really the only difference in terms of like, and that affects the state. It affects the content, but it doesn't affect the ground. That's right. That's right. And, you know, that's even echoed to be in the, in the scientific community because Stephen LaBerge, a psychophysiologist and other neuroscientists, they have this really quite compelling jingle that really resonates uh, with me and what you're saying here, you know, that, that waking consciousness is dreaming consciousness with sensory constraint. In other words, body is, is so to speak, um, active. And dreaming consciousness is waking consciousness without sensory constraints. Uh, and so the fundamental ground is still there it, it's just a matter of whether it's been constrained by the physicality the body or released without that restraint and, and of course this is why in psychological um, circles and also in, in the, the buddhist approach to dream this is why dreams of course are truth tellers because when when dreams are no longer restricted they're no, they're no longer censored they're no longer mediated um, and this is why you can learn a great deal about who you are 
um, in humbling and revelatory ways just by the way you uh, relate to your dreams altogether. But oh, uh, if, with your permission, I want to transition. Yes. Yeah, I want to transition into one of the, I mean, there are so many truly, truly elegant parts of your book. There's no way we can get to um, all the ones I want to talk to today, which means I'm definitely going to have to bring you back. But the one thing I want to talk about now within this idea of, of um, lucidity principle, because that seems to be where we're heading, and also what you were saying about not being captured by the dream. I loved when you were talking about in your book, um, in fact, let me start Let me start it with this phrase, this, this sentence of yours in one of the early chapters, and then I want to do a little bit of a small riff on it and then turn it your direction, because I, I found this really quite beautiful where you talk about the, the path as being more perceptual than actual, um, that in many ways, this is my interjection, the awakened state enlightenment is actually a false destination. It's, it's really more one of opening the aperture of awareness to what always already is. And so with that in mind, I, I love the way you brought several narratives together that have really been part of my life um, one is the is the what I, I guess I could call here the Exodus narrative, the exile narrative, um, and you could even say in, in my terminology the exile principle that you talk about an inner reading of the exile into Egypt um, as, as a, a loss or a, an exile from this what I would talk about is inherent lucidity and. In the Buddhist tradition, this would be the self-imposed exile, for instance, from the luminous bardo of Dharmata after death into the painful bardo, or I should say the, the karmic bardo becoming. And then um, I'm riffing on this a little bit in the stuff I'm writing about, Sibi, and, and what I was struck with was also how this, this exile from lucidity into non-lucidity or freedom into slavery, um, it takes place when we get captured by a dream, when we get captured and swept away by form altogether. And I found it very interesting neurologically, especially with the work of Ian McGillcrest. I don't know if you read his magisterial tome, The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. This is an, a majestic text where with 20 years of research, he basically shows you know, how the, the, the left brain has colonized and dominated the right. And, and even neurologically to me, that's a neurological correlate to this type of exile, that we've been exiled, and this is a wonderful play on the word, we've been exiled from the right brain, and this in a sense right as being correct, <laughs> into the left brain, which of course etymologically um, left is associated with the word sinister. And so um, I want you to talk a little bit more about this really elegant notion of the narrative of exile uh, into slavery, into non-lucidity, juxtaposing this with my terms. And then all of this, um, and we can maybe insert this towards the end, how all this ties in to this incredibly helpful um, description of reality in terms of contraction and expansion, or um, what Plotinus referred to as efflux and reflux, and what Aurobindo and another Kumar Swami and others talk about is involution and evolution. So I know this is quite a bit of a mouthful here, but this is what I really wanted to throw your direction because you come to this idea of contraction, which to me 
is one uh, expression of this contraction is, in fact, non-lucidity. We contract around the contents of mind, get lost in those contents, um, thereby going non-lucid. And therefore, the expansion narrative, the, the release uh, into freedom, you know, um, leaving Egypt, is in fact lucidity. We're, we're expanding the aperture of awareness so that we are now no longer held captive or held as slaves within the kind of um, pinching of our own awareness. So I know this is a lot, but um, it's a flurry of tennis balls I wanted to send into your court and to just see what, what lands with you around that because I, I so enjoyed in your book the way you danced around contraction and expansion. Again, there's so much to say here. I, I find it completely applicable to the lucidity and non-lucidity narrative. So what lands with you with that kind of download? <laughs> and I apologize. Yeah. No, thank you for, uh, for that beautiful kind of, <laughs> you know, interweaving of these many sort of threads, um, not just on the narrative level, but on the deeper dimensions. The, this theme of exile and exodus uh, is directly correlated with these uh, terms of contraction and expansion and, and the experience of lucidity and non-lucidity in my experience. The, the whole concept of contraction and expansion is, you know, originates in just the translations of these Hebrew terms, like uh, this core narrative of the children of Israel being enslaved in Egypt that we find in the Hebrew Bible. Um, the Hebrew word for Egypt, Mitzrayim, literally means contracted, contractions. Yeah, right? beautiful. So, Meitzar, uh, Mitzrayim in Hebrew is the constricted, narrow places. So, this whole narrative is a grand metaphor for the movement and the transformation of our perception from one that is contracted, that is to say, uh, quite narrow and limited in range and scope to one that is expansive. And in, in fact, this is also reflected in the, in the text in the Hebrew Bible, where it says, I mean, a book like, for example, the verse in Psalms, Min anani from the narrow constricted places, I called out to you, God, answer me from expansion. Okay. So this movement from contraction to expansion is the movement from exile to, uh, to freedom. Now, in the Kabbalistic tradition, what were the children of Israel exiled from? What was the nature of this exile, the nature of this contraction? They say it outright. It was the contraction of what they call da'at in Hebrew. Da'at is, it can be, it literally is translated as knowledge. But da'at in the, in the, in the Kabbalistic sense is not ordinary knowledge, it's talking about lucidity. Exactly. And we know that because the center of consciousness associated with Da'at, this tech, it's a technical term in Kabbalah Da'at, um, it's a technical term of, 
of awareness and lucidity that is situated in the throat chakra in the throat center mm -hmm. so and it's directly connected with dreams actually um, initially so when it talks about uh, the dream center as being in the throat center th that correlates with the with the center of dot however when one um, the, the the tradition states that dreams actually the root of the dream the root of the dreams is um, is in the Harare Kodesh is in the the mountains of holiness okay which is another technical term that refers to the more primordial uh, dimensions of consciousness which is the uh, the root of dot. So dot has different manifestations of it. There's different degrees of lucidity, is what it's saying. And uh, one, the first step, you could say, of greater lucidity, is this deeper this uh, dimension of dreaming that's correlated with uh, with this quality of of dot of lucidity, which represents this dimension of circularity of nonlinear uh, experience, which is why it's a, a, a portal for prophecy. So the first stage in developing lucidity is often recognized as connecting to the prophetic dimension, which as we know biblically often occurs through dreams, that people have prophetic dreams. That means that they're, they're, they're stepping out of contraction into a greater degree of expansion that has a greater degree of lucidity, which often manifests through a prophetic dream. And then that then becomes a halfway house to use your, uh, use your term, I like that, a certain kind of stepping stone to, um, to the roots of Da'at, the roots of lucidity, which is more of this primordial ground of non-conceptual pre-creation um, lucidity. Um, what's fascinating is that what they they say outright the Kabbalists thousands of years ago they say that the exile and eat into contraction was an exile of dot. That that was the quality that is actually contracted. It is our lucidity that gets contracted, and then the process of the transformation of our perception is not actual that is to say the children of israel don't actually go from a physical location of egypt to another physical location of the promised land that is a perceptual journey it's a journey of unbinding our um the the narrow range within which our lucidity has become trapped and a primary way that we do this is by identif is by is by wrapping our self-identity dramas around the contents of our experience, which is the primary way, even on the narrative level, that the, that enslavement expresses itself. The symptoms of slavery, of enslaved mind, are reflected in where is our identity located. Okay. So, so this journey, this perceptual journey from contraction from Egypt to expansion, which takes a transitional stage in the desert. They first move out of Egypt and then they travel in the desert for 40 years and then they enter the promised land. The Hebrew word for desert is midbar, which means to speak, which again is a pointer to the throat center, 
which is a transitional a transitional phase whereby we are um, expanding our our you know the limited range of our lucidity into the expansiveness of of the wilderness of the desert, which is first recognized in the dream state located in the throat center. You see, these are all like these are all mystical pointers to yogic kinds of processes inner processes and then after 40 years 40 in in kabbalah is representative of a of a transformational process that comes to completion that's why 40 appears in the hebrew bible over and over again moses is on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights there's 40 years of the flood there's 40 years and we're traveling in the desert and that has to do with the fact that 40 numerically is the hebrew letter mem which represents the eternal present moment mm -hmm. and so by actually and this again points to that principle of it's not an actual journey but a perceptual one is that the way out of slave of the enslaved mind and the way into the expanse first of the desert right the, the state of the transitional halfway house and then ultimately into the promised land of the primordial ground of our non-conceptual mind is, um, you know, is th through um, this um, fully situating ourselves in the eternal portal of the now moment, which is itself the decathexis from the content of our experience into the spaces in between into the the, the ground of our experience uh, which again has many dimensions to it first the the dimension of non-linear time space which is where lucid dreaming in this tradition sort of emanate you know sort of appears and then ultimately into the ground of even lucid dreaming which is the eternal now the primordial now the fundamental ground itself yeah that's i mean it's fantastic also referred to as the fourth moment as you know you know that it's what lama surya das talks about is, is buddha standard time it's a wonderful play you know it's beyond even this present and future of that timeless time and you know i, I have to say my friend when, when we're talking about this even what we're riffing on here and and what you were talking about with with egypt and and the kind of the the, the so-called literal physical description to me it, it, it's as it's as if we're engaging in a form of dream interpretation right now we're, we're looking at, at these historical allegedly historical accounts and we're basically looking at them through a dream lens and and, and interpreting them through this um, kind of symbolic or auto symbolic approach so even what we're talking about alludes to the, the elegance of bringing dream principle even to historical analysis and the other thing that i mean there's so much here to talk about but when when you're talking about this uh, transition into expansion, you know that one of the synonyms for Buddha, of course, means the awakened one, also um, the opened one, and in this case, the expanded one. That it's the Buddhas are those who have opened the aperture of their consciousness to allow more light in. That that light again, synonymous with lucidity, synonymous with awareness. That is, we open the aperture of our heart mind exactly what, again, the physical eye does when we allow more light in. The eye dilates when things get dark, 
Um, and in, I think it's a wonderful correlation yet again of the dilation of consciousness, the dilation of mind that is required to allow this light um, to be uh, revealed to us, which is fundamentally inherently everywhere. Again, that's what makes the path more perceptual than actual. That if we open the lens, the aperture of our awareness, dilate our consciousness, we will in fact that discover that everything that we're looking for is always already right here, right now. Um, and that is no small thing. I mean, this is a, if this is completely grasped, it, it, is, it will rock your world because um, it reduces the entire spiritual path to the foundational instruction of the Dzogchen tradition, for example, which is basically open and relax. It's right here, right now. You just have to open your heart mind to see it. So, um, so much to say here, but please continue. And then I want to tie it into one or two more things from my own experience and see if these land with you. But there's so much to say here because this narrative of expansion and contraction um, embodied in our breath, in our heartbeat, you know, this kind of archetype narrative is, is um, um, Catholicity, it's, it's universal. You'll see it iterated all these different kind of dimensions of reality. So what else comes to mind around all this for you that's applicable to us? Well, I think you're, you know, you're saying it quite beautifully. I can't, uh, uh, I can't say it any better that there's uh, these, these metaphors, these uh, teachings of, um, you know, of biblical proportions, you know, these uh, narratives that have become so embedded in our collective psyche, at least, you know, in the West, um, are dreams. Yeah, it's all, it's all dreams, and uh, it's a beautiful insight that you shared. That really, if it comes down to it, in a way, like what came up for me as you were sharing was, you know, we're 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 always in everything is is an interpretation. I mean, even just the, our our daily life, like the things that occur. Like I've had many experiences. In fact, this is really a way that I I tend to relate to my daily experience day to day is that I, I've had too much too much evidence of the uh, <laughs> the kind of I guess you could see it from two different vantage points. I'll swing back to what I'm getting to. One vantage point is that everything is illusory like dreamlike in a way ephemeral and sort of uh, you know any content of mind whether we're it's of a dream nature or awake nature has from the perspective of the ground has that kind of you know that sense of transparency mm-hmm. on the other hand another angle in which it could be seen is you know, and, and the transparency has more of an emphasis on the emptiness of form, yeah. the, the fundamental emptiness of the forms of, of, of our experience. And the other angle of it that I experience is how magical and full and uh, vibrationally magnificent are these, uh, these light forms that appear to us whether in waking state or dream state. 
um, and so it's these it's these two these two kind of fundamentally polarized yet fundamentally uh, integrated and inseparable dimensions of perception that continues to be just completely mysterious how how you know right now I'm looking out the window as I'm speaking to you and uh, in Boulder right now you know I guess the sun is going down it's getting that twilight kind of quality and here we are we're in this in-between state right between light and dark and the forms that I'm seeing out the window there's trees and there's sky it's totally mysterious how, at the same time, they can be perceived as empty of substance and totally present and alive and vibrationally meaningful, magical, and, um, you know, real uh, at, the, at the same, in the same instant. And this paradox of um of of reality um is uh both <laughs> it's like um it's both the you could say it it's both the uh i don't know how to say this in words but it's um it's like both the vehicle and the territory, something like that. Um, because again, there's that sense that there's nowhere to go, right? So in that sense, it's the territory. And yes, we, we, could, we could use space-time and its particular dimensional features to experience all kinds of things, all kinds of light forms. We could travel on the earth plane or astral planes and experience all kinds of variation of light forms. And in that sense, there's a sense of traveling from one place to the other. And even as I sit here right now and I, and I perceive that and recognize that potential and can experience that potential, it does not in any way um, uh, displace the primacy of the vehicle as situated in a kind of empty, uh, non-localized, uh, non-dimensional uh, mode of perception. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it, it, what comes to my mind here to be is, is really you're talking about this lovely interjection with light forms, because that's where I want to um, head in just a second. But you're talking about empty forms or illusory form you know this this paradox of is the as you know in the heart sutra um form is emptiness and emptiness is form and, and so when it's held within um you know when form is held or recognized and i guess it's the perceptual aspect within the recognition of its empty nature then that is, in fact, what transforms the path into a perceptual one. The path, fundamentally, you could say, a path of recognition. I mean, that's really what it is on, on an absolute level. The path is fundamentally one of recognition. And I, I wanted to make an offering and see if this resonates with you, Tzvi, because this is this has been one of the kind of consistent experiences 
over the last couple of years um, in my practice of open awareness. It's, uh, it's open awareness is a, a kind of practice. It's also called non-referential shamatha, shamatha without a sign. It's kind of a segue practice into nature of mind practices. And, and the one reason I find this practice so compelling is that one of the ways I relate to um, a number of meditations these days is that meditations, different types of meditations create, in my terms, different types of contrast mediums where we are able to see things that we've never seen before. So for instance, when we sit in stasis and meditation, um, body is still, that contrast medium allows us to better see the movement of mind, which is actually the way thought is, is actually described in Vajrayana language as movement of mind. And for me, when I do the practice of open awareness, which is when um, all reference points are dropped and one expands um, the lens of mind to fundamentally rest again in equanimity upon whatever arises. What this does for me uh, is, is by practicing how to be open, or I should say allowing, relaxing openness, that creates a new contrast medium for me that heightens, sometimes painfully, I have to say, the movement of contraction. And so what I've discovered from this, and I want to see how this lands with you, is that when I first started doing this practice, my mind would open, open, open to the point where I would, and again, this is this this is not uncommon at all for long-term practitioners, and I've been you know stumbling on this stuff for almost five decades now, is that the, the sense of self can completely dissolve um, the kind of non-duality thing that I'd love to talk to you in the future. Um, uh, podcast about but what I want to get at here is that what I what I would notice when my mind would become so open is that um, initially I would find myself you know kind of coalescing contracting around an object um, whether it would be sound or sensation or sight or doesn't really matter and at first I said well that's interesting I noticed this kind of condensation um, or contraction around this object and then what I discovered, and this is what I want to ask you, if this resonates with your experience, is that I, I then went even further and, and seemed to unearth that it is contraction itself that actually creates the illusion of object. In other words, there is no out there out there. My mind actually isn't contracting on a pre-existent external entity. It seems to be that way in an unexamined way. But what I've discovered is that it is the actual condensation, the contraction of awareness itself that creates the illusion of object. And I also noticed that within myself when it would be initially like, like I'm hearing that sound. Well, eventually I also noticed that that level of contraction would be a very subtle flicker, a lightning fast flicker of self-reference where that actual reference to self in a similar way, created the very illusion of self, the reference to self being the contraction. And so to me, this was a profoundly revelatory um, discovery that, you know, that I am the one that freezes the world, contracts the world, in fact, um, parenthetically in my own image, and that there isn't anything for me to contract upon. It is the contraction itself that creates the illusion of externality, other and the illusion of self altogether. So I'm curious how that resonates or lands with your own um, experiential and, and actually doctrinal understanding. Yeah, thank you for the beautiful description. Um, it resonates quite a bit. Um, 
I'll, I'll share, you know, you asked about doctrinal, I, you know, all I can speak for is in, in the Kabbalistic tradition and, and then in the, in the way that I experience it through, you know, my own sort of journey is that it's, it's actually exactly that way that what we call contraction is very, it's a, it's a fascinating thing, actually, this, uh, this, this movement of contraction, because on the one hand, contraction uh, has this sort of limiting quality to it, like where we're binding uh, a form, uh, an inherent formlessness into some more defined form. We're providing it with more uh, de definition. And this, uh, this is in fact how creation occurs according to the Kabbalists. The, the creation, the process of creation occurs how does the one become the many? How does formlessness come into form? It, it occurs through a process of uh, contraction. And that, that word that's used for contraction in Hebrew is tzimtzum. Hmm. Um, tzimtzum means contraction, but it also means concentration. Yeah, nice. And, th and this is the, the mystery of contraction because all contraction is, is it, it's a certain kind of concentration of consciousness, of presence, of, of energy, of uh, intention, of awareness. However, you know, we can experience it in many different, in many different ways. But that concentration both um, facilitates the possibility of discrimination between uh, elements within the field of formlessness. And so it's through the, the contraction or concentration of vibrations in this open field of, of, of non-discriminated awareness through which forms can start to be discriminated. Yeah. And so there's no separation between the, the actual the actual contraction and the one perceiving the contraction. It's it's the same field in the in that state of open and then this comes to my own experience of it. My own experience of it, you know, in that more non-dual type mode, you know, there's no it's marked in my experience by a lack, a complete erasure of of any uh, distinction or demarcation or, or uh, discrimination between the one perceiving and that which is being perceived. So there's this sense that, you know, reality, I am, and, you know, it, there's many gradations and subtleties to how this can occur in experience. Uh, in my own experience, it can happen in many different sort of subtle ways, but one, one way it happens is uh, I am reality hmm. manifesting itself through these concentrations and contractions of vibrations into these various forms that then can perceive, is, is self-aware, is perceiving itself as that, 
And because of the unique properties of dimensionless reality when we're in that mode, can also perceive itself sort of from the outside in or from the inside out without without compromising the uh, the lack of location to that identity yeah that's beautiful wow <laughs> i mean this whole notion and it, it, it maybe we'll save this this deep dive for our next conversation because oh my gosh there there's so much coming up for me here um tying what you were talking about this notion of self-awareness or this is a really big deal in the tantric literature and see where they talk about you know a reflexive awareness and and how that ties in to this kind of concentration um, which arguably and this is where i want to transition as we slowly start to um fade into the sunset as our evening is doing so our day is doing so in, into um, light forms and how Fundamentally, um, and again, this is such a large, deep, profound topic, the, the nature of mind and reality, one would say, is nothing more than um, frozen light or, or light condensed, concentrated in, into um, forms that we can then recognize. But I'm going to save that for another conversation because there's, there's such depth here where this ties into really foundational um, bardo tenets and things like dark retreat and the like but but what i do want to transition to i think would be a delightful way to slowly close our, our conversation is tying in a couple of things you know we're we're heading close to um christmas and it's it's a delight for me when i walk around my neighborhood to see all these wonderful christmas lights and I know you've talked and written about this, and I, I found it so delightful um, when you riff on the mystical readings of, I mean, you could really say in this, in this sense, Christmas lights, um, you know, and again, please forgive my mispronunciation, the sephirots, you know, the, the foundational lights of creation altogether. And so in, 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 a, in the spirit of Christmas, talk to us a little bit about inner um, mystical renderings of um, the, the, the light of Bethlehem, for instance. I mean, again, there's so many places we can go here, but um, I, I know you've trafficked on this and, and I think it would be a delight for us to head towards Christmas um, with a deeper understanding of lights in relationship to Christmas and, and just some of the mythology behind it. So whatever might come to your mind around this. Yeah, no, I agree. This is uh, this is a powerful time of year because it, it is real both in Christmas and in and in Hanukkah, which is also occurs around the same time. There is a uh, there is a reminding, uh, pointing us toward the primordial light of creation, and uh, in the Christmas story in particular, you know, which which has its mythological roots in uh, the book of, you know, the Gospels, of course, but really in the, in the story of the Magi, um, the three, you know, these three wise men, quote unquote, it's not the best translation of the ancient Greek, but uh, that, that's how it's typically. Oh, three wise guys. Three wise guys, yeah. <laughs> three wise guys. Uh, but these Magi really were a certain kind of wisdom holders. They, um, 
you know, they see a star shining, right, on their way to Bethlehem, and they proclaim, you know, the birth of, like, the king of the Jews has arrived. That's sort of a very rough kind of overview of the, of the narrative in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, but when understood through the lens of the ancient Hebrew tradition, which, of course, you know, is its, is its origins, it makes a lot more sense in terms of the inner mystical dimensions of Christmas. Because on Christmas, they're, selling, they're celebrating right, the birth of, of Christ, the birth of this star of, of Bethlehem. So what is this star? Well, in the ancient Hebrew mystical tradition, the star of light is a code word yep. for, for the Messiah. But the Messiah is a code word itself, right? Messiah is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Mashiach, uh, which means anointed one, one, one who is anointed <laughs> with oil. Um, and so it's pointing to the potential of our, of our consciousness to attain the state of being anointed with oil. Now, in my personal experience, uh, one can actually experience a, a visceral sense of an ethereal substance descending from the top of the head, down the face, body, saturating one's consciousness in a particular kind of uh, oil of light. And I know in the Tibetan tradition, there's, there's perhaps similar things, Amrita and, and such. Uh, I don't know if they're exact correlates, but it, they're fascinating kinds of lines of inquiry to explore. But th that that uh, oil state, which is known as the Messiah state, is correlated with the primordial light of creation. It's called a star of light. You know, it's, rec it's also referred to as the star because one, a person can experience their, their, original, their original spark of their soul as a star of light shining in the vastness of black space. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, possible to experience. I've experienced that. And it's pointing to the universal nature of every individual consciousness as being grounded in the messianic light of creation. That, in other words, really the, uh, the birth of Jesus that we celebrate on Christmas is pointing us to celebrate and recognize, realize, and connect with our own primordial light of original mind, of, of original nature that existed prior to the creation of all of the contents of our experience. And this can be experienced as a, as a scintillating light of pure awareness shining in the vastness of black, still space, luminous space. Yeah. And so on Christmas, you know, that, that is, and there's so many like beautiful points in the original text that, that, that sort of point to this. In fact, the whole Kaduma teaching, the whole Kaduma path and, uh, is, uh, is a reflection of this, uh, of what Christmas is pointing to actually, because 
you know, it says the wise men from the East, you know, these Magi came from the East. But the East in Hebrew is uh, Kedem. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's found in the book of Genesis that we're East of Eden, right? Where it's pointing to, it's a mythological pointer to this primordial ground of consciousness. That's that's what the symbol of East is pointing to. So the word Kaduma, which means primordial, is the same word for East. Yeah. And it's the origin of these um, these magi, these wisdom holders, that are the ones who are able to recognize and perceive the star of Bethlehem. They're able to perceive the star shining in each and every human being because they recognize that primordial star of light shining in themselves. And so, uh, you know, the, the book, the Kaduma experience that you've been referring to, I dedicated the book to the masters of Kaduma. The masters of Kaduma are these magi from the East. They are the, you know, which is the, the better translation than the wise men from the East is they are the masters of Kaduma because um, the magi of the East, East is, is Kedem, the Hebrew word, which is also Kaduma. They to say they are those who have realized the star of light, which is represented by the primordial East. You know, of course, there's so many correlations I know, and oh. you know, the great Eastern sun. You know, like exactly. you know, this Eastern, this principle of the East is a remarkably yeah. correlated in in traditions that, again, we can't see any historical correlation with. So it's just uh, magnificent kinds of um, correspondences that, again, point to the myster the mysterious forces. Uh, behind our human uh, collective, this human collective project of waking up. And so Christmas for me is a way of celebrating and connecting to the primordial dimension of light that is our, our, that is our original foundational kind of ground of our being. Uh, and that is illuminating all of the light forms of our experience at any moment in time. And when we connect to that, we are redeemed. Like the, the sense of it is, uh, is, is a sense of kind of redemption from the, from the prison of the mind, from the prison of contraction. And that, I think, is the promise of Jesus and the promise that the Christian mystics are pointing us to. Yeah, <laughs> What a beautiful Christmas story! You have to you have to put this to song, you know, so we can <laughs> be, be like you know, new Christmas lullabies and new Christmas melodies with this esoteric, uh, actually inner tour re rendering. And oh, I could not um, be more inspired by what you're saying here. You know, that Christmas is being the connecting to the primordial nature of the light of the mind. And and for our listeners, when I do bring Svi um, back, I promise we're going to return to this. In what I believe you will discover to be a, a beyond profound discussion of the light of mind, the nature of mind, and I want to just toss this in briefly. Zvi, is what you were talking about is also the very essence of Bardo um, practice, and uh, especially what's called dark retreat, which you may have some understanding of, where um, we, one goes into completely pitch black, isolated, prepared cabins, um, somewhat analogous to this time of year. You know, this kind of curfew. 
of consciousness, a curfew of darkness that then allows us to turn within. And then within this, again, there's the contrast medium uh, narrative again. We go into darkness to create a heightened contrast medium that allows us to better see light. And, and so going into dark retreat, whether it's this time of year, a miniature form of dark retreat every night when we go to sleep, or literal dark retreat by going into a cabin, it's, it's analogous, the inner correlate to why astronomers, astrophysicists put observatories on top of mountaintops away from distracting light sources so they can peer to the very edges of the universe and see light sources that they've never seen before. And so in exactly the same way, this is what these spiritual technologies, practices like, like uh, Bardo Yoga in this case, Luminosity Yoga, you know, and in the Buddhist tradition you may know that uh, sleep yoga is referred to as luminosity yoga. The same type of deep inner dark retreat occurs to us when we fall into utterly formless, dreamless sleep every night. Um, and so to, to tie all this into Christian mysticism um, or mystical renderings of, of the light of creation as it's played out in the Christmas story um, and how we can um, kind of create our own Christmas story by paying homage to what darkness invites for us. And I think it's a beautiful way for us to come full circle and start to close out our session today because what we're doing in the arena of, of our little nightclub is in fact just this sort of thing, using the opportunity that darkness provides and, and discovering is, is uh, my friend Chris Wallace talks about, you know, there is no darkness within, there's only light unseen. And when we engage in these practices, we, we see the star of Bethlehem arising within us. And fundamentally then, isn't that the case, Zvi, that we are all fundamentally messiahs in drag. We just haven't awoken up to our messianic nature. And, and these practices allow us highly heretical proclamation um, in traditional um, Christianity, but perhaps the Gnostic tradition relates to this, is that we have the Christ consciousness within us. We have the star of Bethlehem within us. We just need, there's the, the theme again, we simply need to open the aperture and recognize the Christ mass that's already um, within our own heart mind. So how does that sound to you, my friend? <laughs> I, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I'm with you, I'm with you 100%. <laughs> so I have, to, I have to share with our listeners, um, and this is totally said in all candor, this is just a sliver of what is available in, in Z's uh, really marvelous book, The Kaduma Experience. I cannot recommend this book too highly. When I read it for the first time, it, it, it literally just took my breath away. And uh, on rereading, I find even more pearls. And so wait, I absolutely have to bring you back, my friend. Um, there's so many things on my list here that we didn't get to that um, would warrant discussion because you, you bring such a, a wonderful breadth of knowledge and experience that I, I personally find very inspiring. So um, I, I, I'm starting to ask a question. This is a question, it's an impossible question, my friend. I used to ask it years ago when I was in a, in a kind of an annoying um, uh, kind of relationship to um, wisdom teachers and the like, but I find I'm gonna start asking it again because the answers of these questions, these questions have always stayed with me. And it's an impossible question, but I'm gonna throw it your way and let's see what you do with it. And the question is the follows, is as follows. If you were to realize um, that you only had just a few moments left to live, what would be the irreducible expression of your teaching? <laughs> uh, 
Wow. That's uh that's a good way to put me on the spot. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> only because you have the wherewithal to to address this with some lucidity that I'm throwing it in your court. <laughs> that's great. This is you know, I feel like uh, you know, Trungpa Rinpoche introduced this practice of the warrior's exam, you know. That's right, exactly. Uh, <laughs> that's good. And the whole point of the warrior's exam is to uh, to ask a question that elicits one's lucid, one's lucid wisdom on the spot. Right. So you put someone on the spot, and you ask a question that sort of throws them throws them for uh, a spin, uh, uh, and then it forces them to just drop in. So. The truth is that when you ask me that question, what arises is a profound silence that has no words. It's a profound stillness that is, uh, yeah, like I can, I can, I can spin words all around it, but it is, it is, uh, it can only be communicated in silence. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm, I'm, uh, reminded of, you know, the very famous um, summary statement of Wittgenstein, right, where he said something to the effect of whereof one cannot speak, <clears throat> thereof one must pass over in silence. Um, and that's where the Kaduma truly lies, does it not? That's exactly right. The Kaduma, the Kaduma experience is this experience, is the experience of such profound stillness, peace. Uh, silence, um, and while it includes all forms, and it's, it's not exclude, it doesn't exclude any light forms. Um, it's like you know, when you ask the the trick question, right? Um, <laughs> it's like it it stops. It it sort of it it just the immediate the immediate experience that I go into is just that that kind of profound silence. It, it is like the death state itself. So it's like the question is, you know, if you have a few moments left and it's like the response is I'm already dead. Like in other words, like the the the, the difference between life and death is no longer. Like it's uh, it is the profound ground itself that that will know that 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 um, is not subject to few moments left. Yeah, yeah. It is eternally here and now, and will remain so, regardless of the existence of this body. Yeah, well said, my friend. Well said. And, and uh, yeah, really, the, the only way to retort to that is is actually to give it the space and the silence that that answer itself warrants. So, um, just for purposes of practicalities, I always um, do a final close with: How can people learn more about you? 
Um, I, again, I, I desperately want to bring you back um, and talk more, not only about uh, the Kaduma experience, but also your forthcoming book, Sleep, Dreath, uh, Sleep, Dreath, Sleep Death, and Rebirth. Um, very, very interested in that one. But for now, my friend, how can people learn about you if they want to study with you um, outside of your text? What, what can you share with our community where they can start to be more introduced to the uh, brilliance of your own work? Yeah, so first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. And as always, it's a pleasure to share space with you and to exchange exchange these words. I, I find it to be so uh, enriching and personally rewarding. Um, so thanks for creating this community uh, for people to go deeper and and play with the dance of contraction and expansion. <laughs> yeah. uh, if the best way to connect with me is to is to visit my website. Um, which is www.kaduma, K-E-D-U-M-A-H, dot org. That's the organization that I've um, that we've started to uh, to kind of house the Kaduma teachings and my other work. So if you go to that website, you'll see that. Um, you know, I offer online courses. I offer live uh, workshop-type introductory events, as well as uh, a deeper track, which is a multi-year program of retreats that I teach for people who are interested in really experiencing directly the full curriculum of the Kadubma teachings and and. Um, and uh, con connecting with our growing community of uh, practitioners. So that would be the best way to connect with me. Get on the mailing list and you'll stay updated if there's anything happening. And I would love to to uh, connect with and any anyone who's listening to this podcast and is part of this community would, uh, would be a delight for me to meet in person sometime. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it would be delighted to meet you, as, as in fact, the delight has been mine um, as well. So, Zvi, thank you, dear friend, for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. It's, it's, um, I'm going to head towards Christmas with this wonderful Christmas story singing in, in my heart. Um, you can't think of a, a better way to bring light into this darkness because, again, that's what the darkness has to offer. So, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, whatever the proper salutation might be. And uh, I can't wait to um, spin around and talk further about your um, incredible book and also the one that you're going to be releasing. So we'll definitely reconnect down the road. And, and until then, deep, deep thanks on behalf of our community for joining us. Deep bow. Thank you, Andrew.